today. Thank you for joining us. Would you like to grab a Bible and uh, turn to the book of Matthew? It's one of the biographical one of the biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew 6, and we're going to read from verse 19, chapter 6, verse 19 and following. If you are uh, using one of the ready burgundy Bibles in the pew, you'll find that on page 971. If you want to uh, flick to that, it'll be helpful to follow along. Um, the Bible says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and in that regard, that means we need the help of God the Holy Spirit as we come to read these words on a page. How are we expected to understand these spiritual truths without the Spirit's help? So let's pray together and ask for His help. Our Father, we pray that as we come to this word that you have told us is God-breathed, it's from you. As you have uh, assured us of its reliability, as you have assured us that it it makes the simple wise and give light to the eyes. Please, would you help us to discern what it says to, not only to understand it for ourselves and as a family of faith together, but Lord, that we might put it into practice. Uh, We need your help both in hearing and in doing. And uh, we trust in you to answer our prayers today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, for those of you who are just visiting with us today, uh, we're walking gradually, uh, verse by verse, passage by passage, through the book of Matthew uh, to learn more and more about who Jesus is, what, who he is, what he came to do, what he claimed about himself, and, and things like that. And we're in the middle of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking with his followers and saying to them, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to follow me, the king of the eternal kingdom of God. And we're in this passage which talks about treasures in heaven. Let's read from verse 19 and following. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen. This is God's word. Well, there's no doubt that we live in a materialistic society. Great value is placed on the accumulation of money in our bank accounts and and stuff, possessions in our homes. Um, Great effort is put into these things, not just great value, a portion to them, but great effort put into gaining these things. We spend our money, we spend our time, even in the quiet moments of daydream land, we are thinking about how we can get more stuff. Oil tycoon 
Paul Getty offered perhaps the most honest admission of this fact when he said, the best things in life are things. We're probably a little bit more polite than Paul Getty, but I think that's, that's largely the attitude that we adopt or have. I wonder if that's what you think about yourself as you think about your own life, what you think about, what you spend your time on, what, you, what dreams you have for the future, what you are moving towards, what hopes you have, the kind of house you will live in, the kind of area you will live in, the kind of car you will drive, etc. Maybe you don't think that materialism and the, the accumulation of possessions is a particularly big issue for you, but maybe like me, you have one or two blind spots, if I may be so bold. On Monday, I put my car into the Peter Vardy Vauxhall garage for a service. And it was a routine thing. Uh, and as you do, when you sit down at the desk with the chap who's taking your key from you, he says, uh, is there anything else you would like us to look at in your service today, Mr. Garvin? I said, well, yeah, actually, there, there's been a little bit of a whirring noise from the car. It seems to be coming from behind the dashboard. And I wonder if you, I think it's maybe just a leaf caught in one of the fans or something. I'm sure it's really simple, but I, I, I just don't know how to deal with it. Okay, Mr. Garvey, we'll do that. Two o'clock, Monday afternoon, phone call came. Hello, Mr. Garvey. This is Colin, the chief mechanic. I was like, well, that's good. That's good. I like that. I go to Vardy and they give me the chief mechanic. I don't know if it's the guy's a Christian or not. You know, I don't know what. And he says, well, we've got to the bottom of this whirring noise for you. And he says, it's not a fan, Mr. Garvey. It's your gearbox. Yeah. <laughs> Aye, that's right. My face fell. I'm not kidding. I was out with my little daughter. We were bounding around. We were playing in these little, these tent things in one of these shopping stores at Hermiston Gate. And, and I was just like, oh, my face fell. It hit me. And I said, what's the damage? He took me quite literally. He said, well, actually, there's a bearing goes loose and it starts to corrode. And I was like, no, 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 no. What's the financial damage, please? <laughs> and he said, I'm afraid that will be no less than 4,500 pounds. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly right. My heart fell. Now, he did say to me, look, Mr. Garvey, he says, I, I don't think this is necessarily a problem caused by wear and tear. Not unless you've been sitting at every red light with the foot on the clutch and the accelerator ready to go like a Formula One car every time you've been driving it. I said, well, you've not met my wife. And I... <laughs> I'm in trouble. I, no, not true. My wife is a better driver than me. Testimony. Um, but he said it's not this so I don't think it's something that's caused by you and your wear and tear I think it's actually a fault so we're going to phone Vauxhall headquarters and ask them if they'll make a contribution if not pay for the whole thing and I said that's a really good idea <laughs> and I said I'll pray about that for you, <laughs> you know? but the thing is they were shut it was a bank holiday so I had to wait a whole 24 hours now that night I went when, when I was at home, uh, Catherine was out. And there were two things that, that kept on happening. One, I was just standing washing dishes, things like that, and just going, 
four and a half grand. <laughs> you know, four grand, four, you know, I was going crazy. I was like, what is going on here? But then the other thing I did was I actually sat down with some bits of paper and thought, right, reason this will wipe me out, okay? I, I, I am going to have to sell some stuff. Uh, and I was like, what can I sell? And I went, I'll sell my car. I was like, oh, no, I can't. It's not worth a thing. And then I started thinking through some of the possessions that I've got, some of the things that are of value and of worth. And do you know something? Even at the time when it seemed like it was going to be absolutely necessary to let go of some stuff, even stuff that I hadn't used in weeks and months, maybe even years, I was reluctant to let it go. Oh, I might need that. Oh, I could use that. Oh, that's got a little bit of sentimentality about it. I really wouldn't want to let go of that. And it was, it, was, it was a ridiculous disclosure of my heart. I was reluctant to let go of some of the things that I possessed. And as I thought about item after item that was under my ownership, I realized that my heart was gripped by materialism. And I didn't know it until something threatened to take it all away. That was my blind spot. Do you have a blind spot like that? If you put your car in for a service, or if a guy came round, you were about to sell your house to put it on the market, and the chap came and did a quick wee survey for it and said, I'm afraid it's got major subsidence. How would you feel if the thing that you place so much value in was ultimately worth nothing. The good news is Vauxhall came back, by the way, with an 80%. Praise God for that. And that's exactly what I said to the guy on the phone. He's like, I've got good news, Mr. Garvey. They've agreed to pay 80%. I went, oh, praise God for that. You know, I'm sure he was thinking, this guy is a fruitcake. So, do you have a problem with materialism then? Let me ask you again. You know, are you excitedly, are you one of these geeky people that are really excited about the next Apple product that's coming out? You're like, oh, it's coming soon. Or are, are you admiring people with a more expensive lifestyle than you and aiming for that? Do you quietly long to be like them? From the fund manager to the nurse, from the granddad to the teenage girl, our lives are increasingly measured by and defined by what we earn. Our reputation seems to be dependent upon what we own. Our happiness, worst of all, built on satisfying the endless wants of our hearts. What does Jesus have to say about all this? There is quite, quite a challenge in this text today for all of us. Whether you're here today and you've been a believer for a couple of months, a couple of years, a couple of decades, or whether you're here today you're not a Christian. You're thinking, who is Jesus? What kind of things does he ask followers of his to do and so on? This is one of the most challenging things you'll see because it touches on one of the most precious corners and desires of our hearts. Jesus fundamentally asks us three questions in this text from 19 to 24. The first question is, what do you treasure? In verses 19 to 20, Jesus talks about something called treasure. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then he goes on to talk about treasures in heaven. And treasures is just really, it's a brilliant word to use to get to the heart of how we view the things that we own. 
because it talks about us not just having ownership of things, but actually treasuring things. We, we place such value on the things that we have. We love things. We attach that value to the things that we think will make us happy and secure and content. And then once we assign such value to things, they take on all kinds of influence in our lives. And what Jesus does here in verses uh, 19 to 21 is basically divides treasure into two, uh, divides the world of treasure into two different types of treasure. One kind of treasure turns out to be what he is declaring to be a bad investment in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Isn't it fascinating that we spend so much of our time, so much of our money uh, on things that are corruptible, perishable, and therefore insecure? Burglar alarms can keep out thieves, but even if we manage to do that, there are tiny little insects that have a distinct taste for expensive fabrics. Even in a recent Daily Mail article, the question was raised, how come we've never managed to actually get rid of moths? You know, these little things that eat up our clothes and carpets and things like that. The answer, it turns out, in their view, is it has a lot to do with our materialism. The average British woman, it says, now has four times as many clothes in her wardrobe as she did in the 1980s. Never before have we stockpiled so many clothes that are made by expensive, made from expensive fabrics. It's true, isn't it? Whether it's in our closets or in our garages. Our garages are bulging with boxes of stuff we never need. Our rafters sagging because of things we'll really never use. We buy newer and bigger houses with more space. We move into them. What's the first question we ask? What's the first complaint that we make? There's not enough storage space. <laughs> it's true. But even if we manage to protect our possessions with burglar alarms or with insecticides, rust-proof paints. Our investments aren't protected even against, in this day and age, the kind of recession that we've witnessed in recent years. What a wake-up call this has been. And even if the economy picks up and soars to new heights, there is really little return because, I mean, let's face it, our lives are so short. Have you ever seen a hearse with a roof box? I mean, have you ever seen a Pickford's van behind one of Purvis's cars? We haven't. It's a bad investment, Jesus is saying. There's a better way to live, he says. And it's not living with today in view, but it's actually living with eternity in view. That there is something beyond this life. And this, this life is but an infinitesimal speck compared to the stretch of eternity. Because that's where Jesus is calling us to make an investment. Verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart is also. See what he's saying? It's a comparison between the two, treasures on earth, treasures in heaven. If the treasures on earth are corruptible, prone to depreciation, then treasures in heaven, we're supposed to see, are incorruptible corruptible, eternally 
valuable. So surely the challenge for us in this is to see that our stuff, not as things to enjoy, but actually as resources for his glory. That's how people who follow Jesus view their things. Because it's not inherently sinful to have possessions, you understand. The Bible encourages in other places to enjoy the good things that God has given us. Even to save, like the ant, for a rainy day. It's not a bad thing. It's not spoken of as an evil but the evil that is in this is to think that the things that we have, the things that we have been given, have been given to us for our pleasure. That they are supposed to kind of terminate in us so that we can spend it. So that it terminates in our enjoyment. But that's not the case. We're given these things to steward. Jesus says effectively in here that it's, it's deeper than just a simple economical problem or an accumulation problem. He says it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's a problem that has nothing to do with income and expenditure, nothing to do with credit cards and allowable balances and things like that. It's to do with the things that we really want deep in our being. It's the things that we want to live for, the things that we think will bring satisfaction, the things that we think will, will enhance our identity, the things that we think will give us security and happy lives. But he says that if you store up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven, you're in danger of missing out on eternal pleasure because you're simply settling for temporary trinkets. It makes sense. It's practical. It's simple, really. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this sounds to you. You might be in danger. This is what Jesus is saying. You might be in danger of missing out on heavenly pleasures because you settle for earthly comforts. I suppose it's like me offering you the choice of £10 today and £1,000 tomorrow. What would you choose? It's a no-brainer, really. But we get sucked in, don't we? We get sucked into this the pull of materialism and, and the pleasures that these things, well, let's face it, they make us happy. They give us some kind of pleasure. It's not necessarily a good pleasure, but they do make us happy. My wife and I had the, the joy when we stayed in St. Andrews of knowing one of the uh, HR managers at the Old Course Hotel uh, up in St. Andrews. Plush, five star, let's face it, it's good. And uh, we got this deal where on Boxing Day, uh, there was, you could attend a ball, you got like a five course meal and uh, you got to stay the night for something like 50 quid. It was really, really cheap. You know, it's normally 300 odd pounds a night and so on. Well, we went and did this. You know, we were, <laughs> spot the guy from West Lothian. You know, I'm sitting there taking photos of my food before I pick up my knife and fork. You know, I was like, oh, I've never seen it look like that before. You know, and oh, it was decadent. I mean, it was just like, you know, you put it in your mouth and you just went, oh, that's quality. You know what I mean? picked it up from your bib and put it back in and then when you went to stay in the hotel that night you know they had this bath right where where it was just so deep that you sat you were sitting upright in the bath and the water was up to your neck and it was just like this is a bath I've been lied to by bathstore.com for a who knows how long this is a bath that's not a bath this is a bath what happened about six months ago we got this deal on it is on uh, to go and stay at the Fairmont Hotel, which is also in St. Andrews and also five-star. 
and also very plush and very decadent. And when we went in there, we just asked cheekily for an upgrade, okay? And we got an upgrade to a junior suite. The size of this place was bigger than the downstairs of my house. And it was just like, wow, look at this. Uh, Catherine, I lost her at one point, you know? It was that big. Here's what happened next. About three months ago, we found another deal on Groupon. This is giving you an idea of the way I spend my time, doing it? <laughs> bargains, bargains. We went back to stay at the old course, to stay in a hotel room. The very same as the one that we had stayed in the time before when we stayed in St. Andrews. With that bath. No, the bath wasn't good enough. Because we had seen the junior suite up at the fairmont. I became dissatisfied with something that was utterly decadent, incredible in its luxury, because I had upgraded my desires and my heart. And we do the same. Pick whatever it is you're fancying, whether it's an iPhone 5, or whether it's a new car, or a new house, or, I don't know, a meal in a nice restaurant, rather than a medium restaurant in Edinburgh. I don't know. Yeah, when we upgrade our desires, when we upgrade our experiences, our desires go up. We're never satisfied. Never. Well, we're not supposed to be satisfied by things in this world. We're supposed to be satisfied by the treasures that we have in Christ, in Christ alone. That's what we were made for. Man rejects God for the cheap trinkets of this world, but even the most valuable gems in this world are like fairground prizes compared to the treasures we will know in eternity if we have repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus Christ shed blood on that cross for the forgiveness of our sin think about that if you're here today you're not a Christian please do think about that £10 today or £1,000 tomorrow Brothers and sisters, what kind of investment are you making with your time? Your talents, your money. If we were to look at bank statements and scroll through internet browsing history and look at the Amazon wish list, it would no doubt tell us what we're treasuring. I'm convicted by this. When we leave this world, the question is, will we be known as those who accumulated treasure on earth that we couldn't keep? or those who invested treasures in heaven that we could never lose? It's an important question to consider. Two kinds of treasures. Two kinds of investments. One bad, one good. And it's all to do with your heart. That's the first question. What's the second question? How's your spiritual eyesight? This is what we see in verses 22 to 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, at first, when we were reading that, I'm sure you kind of thought, well, that seems a bit abrupt. I don't quite get this eye lamp thing. We're talking about treasure before verse 22 and 23. Then we're talking about treasure after, in verse 24, what does this eye have to do with all this? Well, it's a figure of speech, basically. Uh, you can think about it like this. In short, the eyes are 
critical, we would say, for navigating this life. There are many people who sadly have poorer eyesight or who are completely blind who do a remarkable and amazing job of finding their way through life, of living as they do. But still, in terms of the practicality of the basic illustration, the eyes are critical for navigating this life. If your eyes see well, your eyes effectively take in the light of your surroundings and your body lives in light. If your eyes are bad, however, it doesn't really matter how much light is around you. You are incapable of seeing the light and taking it in. Now, here's where I think this fits in. Here's how I think this fits in with what Jesus is teaching us here. I think he's basically saying, if you've got pound signs for pupils. So in other words, if you're fixing your eyes on the worldly treasures that are around you, the things of this earth, this storing up treasures on earth, if you've got pound signs for pupils, your eyes are bad. And if your eyes are bad, then your heart is bad. And you are unlikely, unlikely to live in the light of eternity seeking eternal rewards. So this unhealthy, see how it fits? This unhealthy fixation on possessions and the accumulation of stuff and is in effect what Jesus is saying is something that we're doing, we're capturing things with our eyes and we're allowing things that good, and we're not allowing the good and godly things that Jesus wants us to meditate on and, and think about and allowing those things that the light that he is shining to, into our hearts as the light of the world to lighten our hearts, our beings, with the good and godly things that are characteristics of who he is, for example. No, instead, we fix our eyes on things that are effectively dark so that our eyes become effectively dark and therefore hearts become dark. We often think that pursuing things will make us happy. That's what it, we think it will. These things will brighten our lives. But Jesus says, ultimately, these things will darken our lives if we look to them for our identity, for our security, for our satisfaction, and the like. In the context, then, the message is really plain. It's all about our vision, our vision becoming clouded by materialism. And as a result of that clouded, uh, of our clouded eyes, we lose sense of, of what is true as followers of Christ. We lose sense of our core values. We stray further away from being the people that God has made us to be. And as a result, even our lives can end up in darkness. The question is then asked, how is your eyesight? Are you seeing clearly? It's fascinating to take into account a biblical theology of darkness in the whole Bible from beginning to end. What does darkness signify? Well, it signifies judgment. It was one of uh, the, the curses that were brought upon Egypt whenever God's people were being rescued and redeemed from there. In particular, you see darkness come at a time when darkness should not have been at that certain hour when Jesus died on the cross, breathing out his last. Darkness came over the land at an unnatural time thick darkness because God's judgment was being poured out on his son on our behalf we do not want dark hearts dark hearts are ungodly hearts and ungodly hearts are at risk of not inheriting the kingdom of God by not living as we were meant to live 
So that's what the eyes are all about. How are your eyes? Do you have spiritual cataracts? Or are you seeing clearly? Is your heart full of light? Because you're fixing your eyes on the good and godly things and not storing up treasures and possessions for your own, but seeing these things as in your hands, holding to them loosely and thinking, how can I use these to bless others, to be kind, to be generous? Knowing that I'm blessed so that through me, other people can get to know the ways of the Lord, to know his salvation that is extended to all. That's the second question. How are your eyes? Third question. Finally, who are you serving? Ultimately, this comes down to ownership, according to Jesus. In verse 24, you read, no one can serve two masters. Now, stop there. That's surprising. Jesus speaks of this materialism, this idolatry of possessions as something that is our master, something, in other words, that owns us. It's, it's, it's a language of slavery, really. And here he's trying to point out for us this pervasive power of possessions. When they, they grip our lives, they, they master us, uh, they own us. The things that we so often treasure and fix our eyes on actually have some kind of controlling effect on our lives. That's sometimes surprising for us because we often think, well, we're the ones who are in control. We think we're the ones who own our possessions. But in fact, Jesus is saying, wake up to this. Your possessions own you. If your heart is immersed in materialism, Every item we buy is potentially one more thing to think about, talk about, clean, repair, rearrange, fret over, replace when it goes bad. It can become a bit of an obsession. But you see how these wealth, these, these things, material possessions, tend to focus one's thought and interest just on the world only. Wealth can gradually enslave those who are attached to it and just perverts their values. The more we have, the easier it is, I think, to be possessed by our possessions, by comforts and recreations. The problem with this is that pursuing the God that is materialism in the end will consume us. We're like Captain Ahab in Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. In that final scene in the book, Captain Ahab is, is making some kind of last-ditch last effort to harpoon his obsession, that great white whale. And the harpoon connects with the whale in that final scene, and, and you can almost sense Ahab, <gasps> he's breathing in deeply with excitement. He's finally got it. But he didn't realize that the rope attached to the harpoon is actually wrapped around his leg. And as the whale lunges violently in response to the harpoon, Ahab is, is dragged overboard. What a scene where you have a helpless soul lashed by the very thing that he obsessed over and pursued all of his days. What a picture. The message is quite stark for us. A man finally getting what he wants only for it to be the source of his destruction. That's the danger we all face when it comes to 
materialism. And this is the warning for us, as Jesus says, you can't have both as your master. You cannot, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's plain to see why. Our possessions demand self-centered living. Our God demands selfless living. Either you're mastered by money and God is there to serve your devotion to wealth, or God is your master and everything is given to you so that you might serve him. There cannot be, Jesus says, mixed devotion. What a challenge for us as a church. What a challenge for me as I was faced by the Vardy service. What a challenge we face when we think about how many people are lost in this city and in this world, needing our help, those who have no homes, those who struggle to live, whether here in the city or across the world. What an indictment on us. I praise God that as I look out, though, I, I see, and, I, and from this church, I see great testimony of our kindness of a marked generosity. That's been seen, obviously, in the building that we've just purchased along Shamrock Place. It's incredible to see. But how incredible to see us raising the same amount over the next 10 years, perhaps, to reach the nations, to help those who have nothing or little help. What a challenge that would be for us. Even as I think about the stuff that I was reluctant to sell in order to pay off my car. What a ridiculous thought. When there are people who are hungry. And people who are needing clothed. People who thank God for just the clothing that they're wearing each day. It's an indictment, isn't it? You think, oh well, that's far away. We can't do anything to help. Yes, we can. And perhaps if we made use of those free insertion days on eBay and sold a lot of the stuff that we don't actually need. I wonder how much we'd actually raise for the sake of the nations. It's a challenge for us. There cannot be mixed devotion. We cannot allow our stuff to own us. Perhaps things have become too meaningful to us, way beyond the way that God intends. We need to be in danger that these things are maneuvering our hearts away from God question here then is in closing how should we respond what should we do what can counter this materialism that we I'm sure feel trapped in is it simply a matter of priorities prior, I can't even say the word making our, getting our priorities straight as long as God is first we can pursue other things well in some ways yes but in other ways no you can actually justify an awful lot of self indulgement if you have that kind of mentality it's not a matter of priority, you see. It's a matter of mastery. It's not just about something being at the top of the list. It's about that thing that is at the top of the list controlling the rest of the list. So that's why our devotion to God, loving him and not despising him, uh, serving him with full, wholehearted devotion is vital to this. But thankfulness for what we have, gratitude's a good thing, isn't it? gratitude subverts greed perhaps 
simplifying the way in which we live, dematerializing life, reassessing the things that we actually need. Might be things that we need to do in order to tear this idol of materialism from our hard grip, our hard embrace. Or generosity in what we give. If laying up treasures on earth is all about accumulation, then surely laying up treasures in heaven means showing kindness and goodness to others. Again, what a challenge for us. I wonder what you think it means for you, friend, here. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. Um, This is challenging for us. I'm sure it's also challenging for you. Because fundamentally what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot serve both God and money. But the Bible tells us clearly that what you need in order to be saved is to know God's Son, Jesus Christ. You need him because he is the only way to the Father. He is the one, the only one, who has died a death where he has explained that it's a death, that it's a, he's a substitute. He dies in our place. So that when he breathes his last, he's taken my sin, our sin, upon himself paying the price for that, satisfying God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to. And he calls on us to lay down our lives to follow him, to respond as Vaughn and Owen have, with faith, believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he really did die for my sin. I'm banking everything on that. And then repenting of that sin trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness this is the call of today's text really and I wonder how you might respond because you cannot serve both God and money you will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other how will you choose do you see a need to? Maybe you don't. I'd encourage you to have a chat with us. I'd encourage you to do what Owen's done, a Christianity Explored course, and think through, okay, if I'm going to reject this thing, because it seems to be that it's a pretty major thing. If if I'm going to reject this thing, at least let me make a well-informed choice. So I'm going to figure out whether the Bible is actually historically reliable. I'm going to find out what what the Bible does have to say about suffering and things like that. Because let's face it, I'm not saying there aren't questions. There are some big questions. But the Bible contains answers. And first and foremost, we need to have an answer for this man, Jesus Christ, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. No one can deny the fact that he walked this earth back then and made such an impact, created a wave that we are seeing and riding gladly even to this very day. How will you respond to this call to not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, incorruptible, eternal? There are two responses, really, typified for us in two guys in the Bible. There's one over in Mark chapter 10. There's a guy called the rich young ruler. Um, Jesus was walking along the street He comes up to Jesus, this young man, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he's like, Teacher, 
All these things I have kept since I was a boy. You sense the excitement in him. He's walking around, high-fiving the crowd, belly bumping. He's thinking, I'm in the kingdom. Well, you see what happened next? To start with, you read, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So in other words, that tells you that what Jesus is about to say next is not being told out of a a cold-hearted cruelty but out of the best interest of the person that he is addressing. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. What do we read next? At this, the man's face fell. He was gutted. He was gutted. In the end, he walked away with hands full but an empty heart. Tragically walking away from the only one who could bring him to eternal joy. The second man is a little man called Zacchaeus. His story is in Luke 19. He is a rich man who has accumulated riches at the expense of others. His eyes were bad. His heart was bad. Jesus came along and graciously went to eat with Zacchaeus at his house. And it tells us clearly that he was converted. He had realized that while he was financially rich, he had been spiritually bankrupt. But in receiving Jesus, not only into his home, but into his heart, believing in him, then he was radically changed. He says in verse 8, Zacchaeus standing up when people are just like, what are you going to this guy's house for? He says, look, Lord. Now that Lord is a word where he's, refer- he's essentially submitting to Jesus. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost do you see the transformation it had Zacchaeus responded he was converted in other words he went from accruing wealth at the expense of others to serving others at the expense of his wealth why because Jesus had replaced money as his treasure and his money went back to being merely money because now his identity his security his happiness was tied up in Jesus and in the life to come and the things that he owned just became things that he could use to store up treasures in heaven Jesus Christ offers the very same salvation to each and every one of us who are here today. If you're a believer, it's for your building up. If you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for the newness of life that he offers, then the call is to confess sin and ask him for forgiveness, knowing that we have acceptance when we come because of his blood, the blood that Yvonne mentioned in her verse that she read at the end drawing near with full assurance having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience 
and holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess because he who promised is faithful. In other words, if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive you. And he's true to his word. Maybe you can say, I want to replace, I have replaced you, Lord, with temporal things and earthly pleasures. But I want to replace them with the true worship and love and devotion of you, the one true God. How will you respond to this today? How will you respond to these three questions? Where's your treasure? How are your eyes? Who are you serving? I pray the answer will be Jesus Christ, the only true God, who gave all things for us. Let's bow our heads, let's pray.